Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. Federal agencies recently released an interim final rule part one of the highly anticipated regulation regarding the ban on surprise billing included in the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, otherwise known as the CAA. This week, NAHU submitted comments to the administration with our thoughts and concerns about the interim final rule. If you want to hear a detailed analysis of what's included in this interim final rule, you can listen to the July 16th edition of the podcast. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, we are going to focus specifically on our response to the interim final rule with, of course, NAHU's Marcy Buckner joining us to review those comments. Welcome back once again, Marcy. So one area where the IFR sought comments from stakeholders and the first provision we commented on was regarding minimum initial payments that claims administrators or insurance issuers need to send in the event of a balanced bill. What did NAHU have to say here? Thanks, Dan. And this is something that we spoke at length about with both NAHU members and a number of members and different coalitions that we're in that are also submitting comments on this part one surprise billing IFR. And here the requirement is that a group health plan administrator, when they get a bill from an out-of-network provider, under the surprise billing law, they have 30 days to either send an initial minimum payment amount or to deny the claim. Even if the claims administrator or the employer sends the provider a minimum payment, if the provider denies it, doesn't accept it, then they have 30 days to resolve the payment privately before going into the independent dispute resolution process, which is going to be part of a next potential round of rulemaking. So we're waiting on what that process would be. But in the interim final rule, it doesn't have a formal definition of minimum payment, what that minimum payment would be. And our comment back to them was that we don't think that a formal definition is necessary and that providing a formal definition could actually interfere with the private negotiation process. And so think about that. If if they set a minimum payment, then that's kind of setting what the negotiation amount should be, Um, because then the provider will know um, right off the bat whether it's going to be something that they're going to be able to accept or deny. And the employer would know if that was already set, whether they were sending something that's going to be denied and immediately go to arbitration. So our comments were that it, it shouldn't be something that's set because if, if it is, then you're essentially providing a payment floor through future rulemaking instead of basing it on the qualified payment amount or the QPA, which was something that was established here in the IFR. And then on top of all of that, we just want to be sure that we're, we're pointing out that 
There are other pieces at play here with emergency care. There's the rule of three that we're asking and verifying is still applicable, even under the surprise billing rule to make sure that that gets paid, that that additional payment is made under the rule of three. And also state prompt payment rules are still applicable here. So we also want to make sure that while the regulators are looking at this from the surprise billing perspective, that they're also recognizing some of the other pieces that are already in law to make sure that providers are paid for the treatment that they provide, but also are still protecting the consumers. So the IFR also touches upon median contracted rates including how they are defined and how they might be calculated. What clarification did NAHU request here? Under the IFR, it says that when a plan determines its median contracted rate, it uses the total amount, including cost sharing, that it has contractually agreed to pay a participating provider, facility, or provider of air ambulance services for covered items and services. And with that, plans must include direct and indirect payments, including those made through a third-party administrator or pharmacy benefit manager. Um, But the IFR does clarify that a one-time agreement between a plan or issuer and a specific provider, facility, or provider of air ambulance services does not constitute a contract. So with this, our question was about how the parties to these agreements are going to be defined, because it wasn't very clear in the way that this was written in the statute about what happens as parties change and what constitutes a future treatment in some cases. So we wanted to make sure that if, for example, an individual, and this is the example we gave in our letter, if an individual has a knee replacement at an out-of-network facility that is only considered to be in-network for that procedure, because of a specific direct contract, we don't interpret that to say that any future unrelated treatment that the individual could have from that out-of-network provider would be subject to the old agreement. So we're just asking to make sure that this is just something that goes back to a one-time agreement. And so even if the parties are the same, if the treatment is different, then it will come under a different set of rules or a new contract for agreement for payment. So that's some of the clarification that we wanted under those determining that median rate and also the participants in the contract and how all of that works. Also in this, they have some of what they call unique situations that can be subject to one-time agreements. And so our question here is for them to define what a unique situation is. And we kind of call back to our previous example saying that a knee replacement isn't unique, but they are subject to one-time payment agreements that often happen. So we want to make sure that we're getting all of these terms correct so that when these rules do go into place, there's an easier playing field for making sure that we understand what a unique situation is versus having a one-time contract agreement that's not going to be subject to any future treatments by that individual that's visiting the same out-of-network facility. Um, But of course, all of this in a potential hypothetical world. So additionally, the IFR made some changes to definitions including the definition of emergency care. How does the IFR seek to adjust this definition and what did NAHU have to say about it? 
Well, we cautioned about this change and the surprise billing rules are recognizing the definition that was under the Affordable Care Act standard that if someone goes out of network for emergency care and what they're calling a prudent layperson, which is a legal term, would consider that event a medical emergency that only in-network cost sharing would apply. But what changes under the definition of the emergency care piece in this rule is that it now includes an appropriate medical screening to determine if an emergency medical condition exists, further medical examination and treatment to stabilize the individual, pre-stabilization services provided after the patient is moved out of the emergency department and admitted to the hospital, and post-stabilization services. And then there's a separate section that goes into detailed specifics of when post-stabilization service wouldn't apply. So with these additions, we also wanted to caution and note that many self-funded group health plans include their own unique definitions of emergency care within their summary plan descriptions and their ERISA plan documents. So in order to comply with this, these group plans are going to need some time to be made aware of the change in the standard and the change in this rule, and then to make the changes to all of the materials and plans that will go out. So we didn't ask for a specific time frame. We were just making sure that we put that in as a caution. Obviously, with the summary plan descriptions, that's a big part of the ACA compliance. So with anything that will change what is in the kind of routine and regular plans, documents that you all send out, we want to make sure that's that's noted for these types of things. In addition to this definition change, the IFR would also change how emergency claims are reviewed. So what concerns did we harbor there? Yeah, so this changes where typically they would use that measure of determination by if whether a claim meets that legal standard of a prudent layperson based on the diagnostic code provided by the healthcare provider. Now under this, health insurance carriers and third-party claim administrators will need to review each case on what they're calling a facts and circumstances basis. And I know that doesn't sound super different, but using the prudent layperson standard and this facts and circumstances basis those are different. So it just is a little bit of a different legal standard. So we recognize and value the approach that they're taking here to make sure that they're verifying emergency claims for consumers under certain situations. But we also just caution that the change in the standard could encourage people to seek non-emergency care through emergency rooms because this standard has kind of been lessened a bit. And so folks might realize that they can go to the emergency room and have these things covered under this new part of the No Surprises Act, when really the most cost-effective and economical way for them to receive care would be going to an in-network provider and going through something that's covered with their plan. So we just want to make sure we're not incentivizing the, the wrong behaviors here. So staying on the topic of changes to emergency care from the regulatory perspective, the IFR includes a new requirement that plans cannot consider if a participant incurred out-of-network emergency care for a service that's typically excluded when paying claims normally. So what did NAHU have to say about this? 
Yeah. And so this is trying to make sure that if something is typically excluded, even for something that's in network care and that plans cannot consider if, if that was incurred for something that was out of network care. So the only way a health insurance carrier or self-funded plan can limit emergency care based on the plan terms or conditions is if the coordination of benefits is involved. And typical plan requirements like waiting periods or cost sharing requirements can't apply. The plan also can't impose out-of-network emergency provider limitations that are more restrictive than those for in-network care. So, for example, if we're using the language from the IFR, if a plan excludes coverage for injuries incurred during the commission of a crime and a person goes to an out-of-network for emergency treatment of an injury related to the criminal activity, that could be a covered claim. So we're raising this as a question and encouraging them to revisit the requirement through additional regulatory guidance or rulemaking because health insurance issuers and group plans need to have and enforce reasonable exclusions at times that are unrelated to the emergency status or network status, as we used in our example, an injury sustained during the commission of a crime. And the goal here with the surprise billing rules is to related to emergency coverage should be to ensure that people who need to seek care in a medical crisis can do so without fear of excessive cost sharing after the fact. So it sh- should not be to give out-of-network emergency room providers unfettered access to providing any type of care and requiring health plans to cover all of it or pieces that even would not be covered under any other plan circumstances, including if it was rendered through an in-network emergency care facility. So trying to make sure the same standards are applied there. NHU also sought clarification on how ground transport is covered in balanced billing situations since surprise billing protections related to ground transport are categorically excluded by the terms of the statute and this IFR. So what information did we request from the agencies here? We want a lot of clarification here. It was actually a really small section of our letter, but asking for a lot. And it's because, as you noted, ground ambulances were not included in the No Surprises Act. There were some limitations on air ambulances. But as you can imagine, with emergency care, oftentimes the transport of the person needing care is a vital part of providing that treatment. And so our question is not only about the transport from where the patient may be to an out-of-network facility, but it's also about if they're at, let's say, an in-network facility and the emergency, they are going to have to go to an out-of-network facility or vice versa, transport between those two different types of entities for completion of care, is that ground transport included in the No Surprises Act, especially when it's essential to securing care? So that's what we're trying to get clarification on. Finally, amidst our questions and desire for clarification, there were a couple of terms in the IFR that NHU expressed support for. Is that correct? Yes. One area we expressed support for was the way in which they were calculating the qualified payment amount that I referenced earlier when I was talking about that minimum essential payment and also determining the median rates. 
And with the qualified payment amount, this is going to be very important in the long run for the numbers and amounts that the arbiters are able to take into consideration when they're looking at the numbers for a resolution through the independent dispute resolution process, which is IDR with the arbitration process is going to be. And the qualified payment amount was calculated in a way in which we favor and actually we think will drive to a lower cost on consumers. So that is something that we very much supported. Another piece that we pointed out were the different ways in which self-funded plans work on a number of these different areas, from the definition of emergency care to the median rates and others, and making sure that these pieces were recognized both in the final result of this interim final rule and in subsequent parts of surprise billing regulations. And then finally, addressing some of the differences that states have with their surprise billing rules. And as many of you know, several states over the past couple of years have been putting surprise billing bans or limitations in place within their states. And not all of it aligns perfectly with the way that the No Surprises Act was passed. And there was a short reference to state laws in this IFR, but not a lot of clarification. So we're asking for that here. But something that we've also learned in just the past few weeks, very short time frame, is that HHS is collecting questionnaires from all of the states right now regarding what their states have done on surprise billing. And HHS is going to go through all of those responses and provide their own response back to the states, a unique response to each state, depending on what's been going on there with what the expectations are for implementation and regulation of the state versus federal laws. Um, That's something we learned about during the National Association of Insurance Commissioners meeting earlier in August. So this is new information, but it never hurts to reinforce the need to make sure that we have those pieces clarified in the long run for when these laws are going to be put in place. This week, we are toasting to Labor Day, which pays tribute to the contributions and achievements of American workers. This year, especially, we know you all have worked very hard with trying to keep your clients insured and covered in plans. And so here's to you. Enjoy the day off and happy Labor Day. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.